Welcome to the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor, with the Joint Trauma System. On this episode, we have two guests that will be discussing the burn care CPG. I'm joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Mario Rivera and Colonel Jennifer Gurney. Lieutenant Colonel Rivera is active duty in the Army Nurse Corps, and Colonel Gurney is a surgeon at the USAISR, as well as the Chief of Trauma Systems Development here at JTS. Now I'll turn the time over to them to discuss the CPG. Okay, uh, so my name is uh, Mario A. Rivera. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel in the Army Nurse Corps. I've uh, been active duty for about 20 years, uh, and from 20 years, probably about half of them uh, have been in the uh, USAISR Burn Center. Uh, used to be the former uh, OIC for the Burn ICU and uh, former OIC for the Army's uh, Burn Flight Team. My name is Jennifer Gurney. I'm a surgeon in the Army, and I've uh, worked at the Burn Center for the past couple of years. I also work at the Joint Trauma System. We're going to be talking today a little bit about the Burn CPG, uh, and many of the authors on the Burn CPG are currently uh, active clinically in the Burn Center or have been uh, in the recent past. Okay, so, so ma'am, we were discussing uh, kind of in terms of how a, a critically ill burn patient presents itself from point of injury and as continues to move through through the continuum of care. Uh, from, from your experience, can you elaborate, especially for folks that are not familiar with managing this specialized type patient, how, how the lanes define versus providing point of injury, role one type care versus the patient starts moving from role two and above? Yeah, I think that's a great point because, you know, most of us don't get a lot of experience with burn care. You know, really it is highly specialized. So um, the farther you move along the continuum, the more specialized the care gets. But I think for the point of injury and role one provider is the first thing is to treat a burn patient like any other trauma patient. You know, there are some innuendos especially with the airway or if there's any. So with A's and B's, there can be some kind of uh, nuances with the burn patient. But otherwise, you want to look at them like any other trauma patient. So TCCC uh, guidelines, hemorrhage control. Uh, and you know the thing about burn injuries, and it says this a couple times in the CPG, is they can be really distracting. Uh, they're incredibly painful for the patients. They, they can smell. Uh, you know, they can be a bit shocking when you see a burn injury, but the thing is to treat the patient like any other trauma patient. Um, a less than 20% burn is not something that clinically is usually very concerning. So if those patients are in shock, then they're usually in shock from something else, whether it's hemorrhage or tension pneumothorax or something else is going on. A greater than 20% burn can really present some significant clinical challenges. So at the early, uh, early in the management of a burn patient is take care of their wounds, just wrap them in dry dressings, don't try and do anything with the blisters and move them along to a continuum of care. You want to get IV access and uh, start, you know, sometimes we go crazy with fluids for burn patients and that can actually cause more morbidity than being a bit judicious until the patient is kind of, until you figure out what their percent of uh, total body surface area burn. Uh, you know, you don't have to start, I've, I've heard many times downrange, someone will say, oh, I've bolus them two liters, you know, for a 15% burn. And, and that is probably not gonna hurt the patient, but it doesn't necessarily help the patient. I mean, a lot of times our combat casualties are already dehydrated, so some volume doesn't hurt them, but over-resuscitating a burn patient 
can have just as much morbidity, if not more than under resuscitating. So anyway, for the, let me get back to the question. I'm rambling. For the role one and uh, pre-hospital provider, don't get distracted by the burn injury. Treat them like any other patient. Cover the wounds with dry gauze. Uh, assess their airway. If they have facial burns, they can lose their airway pretty quickly. So if you're thinking they need an airway, um, because of large amounts of facial burns or hoarse voice or carbonaceous sputum, then a definitive airway, so a cuffed tube below the cords. Superglottic airways do not help burn patients because their cords will be swollen. So they'll get edema below where the airway ends and then get them on to the next level of care where they can have appropriate wound care and continue the fluid resuscitation. And, and Greg say because I, I think it's it's definitely one of the areas that actually it's it's kind of confusing for for non-burn provider, which is the appropriate burn resuscitation. Do I use four cc's per kg? Do I use two cc's per kg? Uh, and, and the Army's burn center uh, over the last 10, 10, 15 years, it's been able to to make advances in terms of the dialing in into the, the appropriateness of uh, proper fluid resuscitation. Uh, can you elaborate uh, in terms of the application of rule of tens uh, versus other formulas? Yeah, so I think the rule of tens is, uh, you know, kudos to I think Kevin Chung who figured out the rule of tens. I mean, it's a it's a really elegant way to look at burn patients who are uh, under 80 kilograms, between 40 and 80 kilograms, is the TBSA, so the total body surface area times 10, and that's where you start. That's where you start. That's not always where you finish. So if somebody's a 30% burn, that would be a 300 cc's an hour. And then following them closely, once a patient gets to a roll two or a forward surgical team, any place that has a way to start recording the hourly input and hourly output, that is one of the most important things you can do is to really watch that hourly urine output. We know from our early experiences in the uh, conflicts, so this is 2004-05, we over-resuscitated a few burn patients. They developed abdominal compartment syndrome. They were leaders and leaders over-resuscitated because as they moved along the continuum of care, nobody was really watching how much their total fluid was. So once that patient gets to a roll two, or if they get to a roll one like Italian aid station, the uh, burn flow sheet, which is one of the appendixes in the CPG, should be immediately started, timed, dated, started with the patient's name, where they are, and every hour that should continue until they arrive at the burn center. And we have great examples of this uh, on many burn casualties who have gotten these started at roll one, and then you can see each time uh, they, they switch to another role of care, and they're continuing to look at that <coughs> hourly input and hourly output to maintain the urine output between 30 and 50 cc's per hour. Excellent, and that's that's in in our army medevac world, we'll, we'll call that that poor man swan gans in terms of assessing that urinary output. Uh, from, from your perspective, other clinical markers that you want to aim in terms of vital signs, uh, blood pressure, so yeah. on and so forth. You know, so mental status is, if, if, if the patient's not intubated, you know, their mental status is a, a huge indicator of their overall perfusion. Burn patients are always a bit tachycardic, which I think can be confusing because you're also thinking about hemorrhagic shock. But they, if they're tachycardic and hypotensive, then you're definitely thinking about another cause of the hypotension. Burn shock can do that, but your first thing should be to rule out uh, hem hemorrhage or tension pneumothorax or something else that could be causing their uh, MAPs to drop. But burn patients usually have heart rates above 100, 100 to 120. 
Um, you know, so indicators that you're resuscitating the patient, mental status, uh, a map above 60, urine output between 30 and 50, and, um, and you know, perfusion, you know, end organ perfusion. Again, over-resuscitating a burn patient, giving them tons of fluid, will increase their interstitial edema and actually can, you know, make your burn wounds worse. So, um, you know, you, you checking for capillary refill, especially for circumferential burns, um, and being sure that there's good, you know, uh, end organ perfusion. And, and another aspect uh, that we always want to delineate is the difference between your burn fluid resuscitation and your trauma resuscitation. So, uh, going back to if you have a patient that it's uh, hypovolemic, uh, hemorrhagic, uh, going back to making sure we do that thorough head-to-toe assessment, not necessarily this patient it's hypovolemic because needs burn resuscitation, but perhaps is let's go ahead and check airway breathing circulation, make sure those tourniquets are properly placed, right. uh, use you know blood therapy, uh, fresh whole blood to actually uh, yeah, Complement that trauma resuscitation. You know, absolutely. And I think that what we're going to, uh, yeah, I mean, so fluids, if someone is in hemorrhagic shock or hypovolemic shock that's not burn related, so hem hemorrhagic shock, giving them crystalloids, so giving them lactated ringers or plasmolite is not good for them. It's just not. If they are in hemorrhagic shock, they need blood. And they need, you know, blood before anything else. And you know, we're really making a move towards low titer O whole blood. What's nice about uh, whole blood is that it also has FFP, which is a fantastic volume expander as well. I think what we'll see in the future with burn patients, and some centers are already doing it. It's very briefly mentioned in the CPG, but plasma is a great volume expander for burn patients kind of uh, uh, calms the end of like the, the inflammatory storm that some of these patients have. But um, if you have plasma available, uh, I think that that is a, a very good uh, resuscitation fluid for larger burns. I mean, something, you know, less than 30 or 40% would not need plasma unless they had another indication for it. But I think that, uh, You know, so getting back to your question, if they're bleeding, they get blood. They don't get lactated ringers to correct blood loss, they get blood. Uh, if they're a large burn and they're bleeding, you resuscitate their hemorrhage first and foremost, and then worry about their burn injury. You know, burn injuries are not going to usually uh, kill somebody in the, you know, immediately, but hemorrhage will. Uh, and so, you know, hemorrhage is always treated first. As patients get resuscitated, you have to really watch them, especially if they have circumferential burns around their thorax, around their extremities. Uh, one of the pitfalls could be a patient who has a circumferential thoracic burn is also in hemorrhagic shock, and you resuscitate them appropriately with blood products and get their hemorrhagic shock under control, but then you notice that they're uh, getting hypoxic and hypotensive and that they don't have good respiratory excursion. They could have Uh, a uh, restrictive process because of their circumferential thoracic burn wounds, so then they would require escherotomies, which would make them bleed more, and then you'd want to give them more whole blood or FFP. Um, so these patients, when they're polytrauma with burns, the burn certainly complicates the injury, but the first and foremost treatment should be hemorrhage. What you said. Uh, <laughs> switching gears a little bit, and, and at least from 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 my clinical experience, uh, 
when, when I make the switch from surgical ICU, medical ICU to burn ICU, uh, I was not prepared to, to understand the amount of resources you invest into caring for a burn patient, uh, specifically, uh, you know, effective pain management, the amount of narcotics and sedatives uh, that, that you're going to have to use in order to provide proper care. Uh, is there a particular a type of analgesic uh, that, that, that can help for the management of these patients from, from point of injury to roll through and above? Yeah, I, I think you're setting me up for that question. I think you know you know the answer. You just want to see if how quickly I'm going to say. It. But before I say ketamine, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about how resource intensive burn patients are because they're incredibly resource intensive and it's specialized resource intensive. So one of the things, and it's in the CPG, I think it's like one of the first lines is if you have a service member who's burned, you want to get in touch with the USA ISR Burn Center because it is resource intensive and the burn, depending on the size of the burn and the critical injuries, we have a fantastic capability in the burn flight team uh, to get the patient and to really help with the management of the patient the, the entire way along the continuum. Now, getting back to one, so resources are wound care, surgical procedures, but uh, like you wanted to talk about were anal, analgesia and sedation. So burn patients, I think, do really, really well with ketamine. I think trauma patients do well with ketamine as well, and we're using it more and more. Um, certainly the, the TCCC uh, pre-hospital environment adopted it, but we're using ketamine drips, as you know, in the ICU. It's, it's almost routine now to put a burn patient on a continuous ketamine infusion. But I think that ketamine... Um, has fantastic analgesia properties and uh, whether or not they need an adjunct uh, to, to help with some sedation, uh, like propofol, if they are adequately resuscitated, not hypotensive, or Presidex, same thing, adequately resuscitated, not hypotensive, or a little bit of benzos, depending on how they react to the ketamine. Not everybody has these uh, dissociative, dysmorphic uh, issues with ketamine, but some do, and they'll need some additional support, or they can have some... Uh, regular narcotics. But like you alluded to, um, burn injuries are incredibly painful. And uh, so starting in the pre-hospital environment, you have to start with some pain care now or pain management. If um, if the burns are not painful at all, then, they're, uh, then they are full thickness burns. And that's a worse uh, prognosis for the patient because they'll need all of those excised and grafted. And that has a, a, a much higher complication rate than partial thickness burns. Another item to, to, to highlight in the CPG, it's not only dedicated to thermal burns, but other types of injuries that actually complicate the management. Uh, and from top of my head, I think uh, patients that not only have uh, thermal burns, but also have inhalation injury. Patients that have burns, but also their electrical burns. Yeah. Uh, any, and how the, the, the management differs one versus the other. So inhalation injury really does complicate uh, burn management for a bunch of different reasons. One, patients with inhalation injury really require much more resuscitation than, uh, than, than patients without inhalation injury. And then that kind of is a double-edged sword because they need more resuscitation and that fluid then ends up hurting them from a pulmonary standpoint and an oxygenation standpoint, which is again why I think the future burn resuscitation is likely going to be with, with plasma as a volume expander. Um, and I haven't seen like very many cases of trolley and burn patients at all, but I've seen a lot of over resuscitation and, uh, and prolonged hypoxia and even needing to go on ECMO. 
Anyway, uh, so if a patient has an inhalation injury, should be uh, can be diagnosed if it, by clinically if they depending on the mechanism of the burn. So if they were in a closed building or vehicle, uh, also if they have carbonaceous sputum. One of the things that the uh, roll two or even pre-hospital when the patient gets intubated, if they require intubation, which if they have a significant inhalation injury, they will, using a larger endotracheal tube like an 8.0 will make it much easier for people to bronch the patient. Now, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, no worries. They'll just switch the tube out at the next roll of care. Well, let me tell you, if, the, if there's a facial burns and if there's a lot of airway edema, Nobody, even the best anesthesiologist, wants to switch out that ET tube. So at the first uh, roll of cares, putting in a larger ET tube will make pulmonary toilet with bronchoscopy much easier at the roll three in flight on the burn flight team or CCAT and then back in the States. Um, and then so th that's, that's step one. And then also nebulized heparin uh, helps with kind of mobilizing these kind of um, uh, like not secretions. Uh, concretions? They, they con yes, concretions. Thank you. Yeah, see, the burn ICU nurses say always correct you when you're wrong. I've learned that. Um, so the heparin, but, but heparin really causes significant bronchospasm. So you want to give it with albuterol. And if you forget, if you have a good RT, they'll remind you. Or the burn ICU nurse, if they happen to be there. But, um, and then, uh, so, so that's, so inhalation injury. So, so pearls for that is they do usually require more fluid. Uh, they should put a larger ET tube in and they need frequent bronchs. Uh, ET tube uh, blockage with concretions can be a big deal and can be life-threatening. So that's why you want to keep the tube clear uh, and then sometimes just giving little saline bullets down and then uh, aggressive suctioning. And then also you want to stage the grade of inhalation injury, uh, you know, whether it's grade one through grade three. And if you haven't done a lot of bronchs or burn injury, you might not be able to know, but, but you'll, know a bad, you'll know a bad inhalation injury when you see it on bronchoscopy. Electrical injury, electrical injuries uh, are sneaky. They are super sneaky because you do not always know how significant that injury is based on the external findings. So kind of the biggest pitfall would be burn and electrical. So you're thinking, you know, okay, you see what, what you see is what you get, but then if they have an electrical injury and you can usually tell by the uh, entrance and exit wounds or based on the mechanism of injury, then they can get a lot of muscle edema and require a huge resuscitation. They need to be monitored for um, urine output very closely. And in general, patients with electrical injury should have a higher urine output goal uh, greater than 50 cc's per hour. You also want to watch their urine for pigments uh, uh, to see if, be sure there's not any uh, rhabdomyolysis. You want to closely monitor compartments and don't forget about the paraspinous compartments and gluteal compartments because those are ones that will be tricky. I mean, extremity compartments we're all used to, but uh, other ones, there are other compartments that can, uh, can, can have myonecrosis and really threaten the patient's life. We have a great capability now on the burn flight team, and I don't know if CCAT does it yet, but the burn flight team does is CRRT. So anybody that I thought had an electrical injury, especially if they were really sick, when I called the burn flight team, I would say, please bring capability to do uh, renal replacement therapy because these patients can go on to uh, renal failure and they can be really challenging to manage. Excellent. Now, now, now that we go short final in, in, in the podcast, and I usually uh, get nervous when, when we get you, when we get Dr. Rizzo in one room, because usually you represent 25% of the Army Medical Department strength when it comes to burn trauma care. So we want to make sure that we, we maintain that. Uh, 
from from your perspective, especially in in, in austere type areas, uh, when you have uh, providers that are not familiar with burn management, what what are the, the burn patients that you want to get a call from the from those providers saying, hey, should I transfer this patient to the burn center? Should I mobilize the burn fly team? Any patient. I mean, we are, you know, any patient. We have a red phone that sits in the burn ICU that is manned, you know, 24-7. And that phone will go to the burn surgeon on call. And if they're in the OR or sometimes out of range, I mean, our, our phones of all places rarely work in the hospital, uh, certain areas of the hospital. But they will, you will, they will find a burn surgeon for this, anybody downrange to talk to. You know, burn care is specialized. These patients, if they're not managed optimally, in the first, you know, eight to 24 hours or even earlier than that, their outcomes are not as good. So there are, you know, there are burn surgeons that are available 24-7 uh, without any without any issues at all. I mean, it can be, you know, something simple that that or not simple, but we'd rather get a phone call than not. I recently returned from a deployment and, uh, you know, I would get calls from some of the roll twos with, you know, really just basic questions about burns because we don't see them that much. And they're really only in, you know, anywhere from five to 8% of combat casualties. You know, earlier in the war, I think we saw them more commonly, but people aren't familiar with burns. I mean, I was a general surgeon for about 10 years before I really understood burn care. And I, you know, did my burn fellowship uh, after doing a trauma fellowship. And I learned so much and have so much respect for the specialized level of care. So that's why the first line of the CPG says call. And, you know, now with all the kind of, you know, apps for this and that, we can send pictures and a picture's worth a thousand words. You know, if you are a forward deployed physician, PA, medic, you know, whatever, and, and you have a patient that has a burn and you're not sure about it, get in touch with us. We are happy to help any time of day or night. I think that's it. I, I, I'm, in retrospect, you know, 15 years ago, I wish I had this capability as I was starting my burn management career. We've learned so much over the last 15 years, uh, and we know it, it's a very specialized treatment, uh, but having these resources and sharing this information, this ultimately this is what's going to save lives in the battlefield. So. And when in doubt, call a burn ICU nurse. They'll tell you, right? <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for those questions, Mario. That was fun. Thanks, man. This concludes this episode of the Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. Stay up to date with CPG developments by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. You can always find the latest tactical and surgical combat casualty care information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile app to your phone or tablet. With the app, you can access the latest combat casualty care content, JTS clinical practice guidelines, and instructional videos. Our target is to eliminate preventable combat death by providing the right training and right tools to be applied by the right people at the right time. Until next time, stay safe and continue saving lives on the battlefield.